this is Tim Mead, president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum uh, from Cooperstown, and uh, you are listening to From the Heart with Ed Hart. My guest today on From the Heart uh, has made a career out of working in Major League Baseball, professional baseball. He spent uh, 39 years working with the Los Angeles Angels here in Southern California. The last 22 years, he was the vice president of communications and We'll certainly get into some great stories today in our interview with Tim. Recently, however, in June of 2019, Tim made a, a transition that I don't think even Tim expected that he would make, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about that too. But in June of 2019, uh, Tim was appointed as the president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in Cooperstown, New York. Uh, timing's everything. I was there the year before. I, I got to go back now, Tim, obviously, and spend some time there when you're there. Uh, he's the proud owner of a World Series ring. He was with the Angels in 2002 when they won the World Series. Uh, Tim is involved in a lot of and has been over the source of, or the, the length of his career, several charitable organizations. And many of our viewers and listeners have heard me talk with previous in, uh, individuals involved with, for example, the Ronald McDonald House of Orange County. And that's where I know Tim has spent a lot of his time when he was here. Uh, notably in 2012, Tim was honored by the American Diabetes Association as one of four National Father of the Year recipients. And let me just, I'm gonna look at my notes to tell you about this. This is an award that's, that's bestowed to men who portray and epitomize family, citizenship, charity, civility, and responsibility in their everyday lives. I've known Tim for about 20 years, and if those adjectives don't describe him, then, then I can't think of other words that would describe him better. Uh, we met in around 2000 at the baseball winter meetings, I believe in Dallas, Texas. And uh, we've just maintained a relationship and friendship ever since. A little side story is uh, I get an opportunity to teach a sports management class at UC Riverside. And Tim has been kind enough to open up the doors to Angel Stadium, literally for uh, myself and my students and give tours and just sit and at a busy time right before he's leaving for spring training every year. He sits down and takes time to talk to our students as if they're the only human beings on the planet. And I just know that you're going to enjoy this conversation uh, with Tim Mead. So Tim, welcome. Thank you so much for being on From the Heart today. Yeah, it's great seeing you and, and connecting again. I've uh, missed some of those conversations. Yeah, I know. I was uh, saddened, obviously, that we didn't get to do that this year because you're you're back in Cooperstown mostly. I hope you like my, uh, you know, my my wallpaper behind me here. Uh, Hopefully it's not making you too homesick for Cooperstown. I know you're out here in Southern California right now during this quarantine, if you will. Yeah, absolutely where I, where I should be. And, and uh, the staff back at the museum, we, we talk daily, the senior staff. And, you know, it's tough because the Hall of Fame is open all but three days a year. Mm -hmm. And uh, for it to be closed yeah. is very, very difficult. Um, you know, it's a working museum. It's not just about the folks that go there, but it's a it's a functioning museum and research center and library. Um, but it's so much the center of, of the village, obviously, and uh, kind of a rallying point. But sure. I think, as, as everybody else, we're being the, the same good citizens that we all need to be. That's a great location. I was there in the summer of 2018. And I think we only, we only had about three or four hours there on a Saturday afternoon because we were en route to, to Niagara Falls. And um, you, you can't see it in three hours. You can't see it in three days. But I got the highlights. I got to see, you know, the, the plaques that you see behind me here. I got to see, you know, the, the hall there and, and walk through a lot of the displays and, you know, saw the things that were the most meaningful to me. 
and uh, I'm looking forward to going back. And I know I have a connection there when I go back now too. So looking forward to being guided by the man himself. So tell me a little bit about your role, president of the Baseball Hall of Fame. What is that? Uh, it sounds glamorous to all of us baseball fans, and I'm sure there is some glamour to it. But tell me kind of the day in the life. What does is, what is the president of the well, Hall of Fame do? I'll tell you, it's a great question because the president's still learning what it means to be the president <laughs> of the Hall of Fame. I'll bet. Um, you know, it's obviously mid-June is when I left. I got to Cooperstown June 14th, so you know, I, I still don't have a full year under my belt, but ultimately it's working with a great group of people, um, historians, librarians, curatorial people, um, you know, the front office working towards obviously the, uh, the induction ceremony, the classic weekend and Memorial Day, but it's Ultimately, I think for my hiring, um, when Jane Forbes Clark and I met, it was because of the years in Major League Baseball and some of the relationships and networking to really bring somebody on the club level and a continuation of those associations. I think it's 19, 20 of the Hall of Famers that I know. You know, we have quite a few of them come through, you know, wearing an angel uniform to get back to Winfield and obviously Rodney and Sutton and um, Ricky Henderson and others. So he had that relationship and it's probably a little bit more than 20, but it's, you know, my charge at the time, as much as it's overseeing the institution, we have a tremendous gentleman, uh, senior VP, Jeff Jones, who handles administration and finance because I'm not a financial wizard, um, but it's staying in touch with people. It's protecting and overseeing the relationships with 79 living Hall of Famers at the time, uh, and establish more re working relationships with the clubs themselves. Uh, my predecessor, Jeff Idelson, has been a friend for 30 years, did a great job. Jeff spent 25, 25 years with the Hall, and uh, you know, kind of retired, stepped aside at 54, and um, so I, I, I look at myself as kind of taking that baton from him and continuing to run and making left-hand turns and just keep the race going. So well, um, if they're looking for a people person, they found the right guy. Well, it, you know, it ultimately it's, it's, it is relationships, but it's also trying to bring a little bit of a club perspective, you know, to Cooperstown. And we've, we initiated something uh, started in spring training with the cactus league. And, and obviously we're very hopeful that, you know, everything else starts up at some point later, right. but we're going to give every player with the, uh, at least one day of major league service going into 2020, a lifetime pass. That's and awesome. it's not just it says major league player, lifetime pass. And it, you know, it's a, it's a credit card type of pass picture. Sort of like the alumni get at a ballpark it, and so forth as well. Exactly. And then there's a great quote from Hank Aaron on the back, but it's personalized. And then we wrote a letter uh, dressed with the card to each player, dropped them off in camp. You know, the, the Latin players had uh, a letter in Spanish through the uh, support of our dear friend, Jose Moda, mm -hmm. and then uh, Grace McNamee with the Angels PR staff translated the letter in Japanese. So we're able to try to personalize it as much as possible. Any player that comes to Cooperstown and wants to get in there and get a tour, is going to get it. But we kind of viewed it as, as kind of a calling card to the Hall of Fame. 
that you're welcome, come here, we're gonna knock on your door for an artifact at some point. And the great thing is some of the initial responses we heard from players were, were very appreciative. Yeah, that, that's really great. So you talk about uh, 79 living players that are in the Hall of Fame right now. You've been around, you know, well, some of the, to, Now I have to go to 82 with- Well, that's uh, true, because that's gonna add up here in yeah. the next few months, that's right. Yeah. You've met, you know, the, the who's who of, of Major League Baseball players in your life. Is there the one that in the last nine months that you've met, you're meeting Hall of Famers now, that you yeah, just I, like on, wow, I can't believe I'm talking to this particular, probably a lot of them, but is there one that stands out? I, I think one of the, I think collectively the way I view it and not begging that question <laughs> is, you look at them all, they've all achieved. Yeah. They're great. They've all risen to the peak of, or the pinnacle of their profession. So there's an inner peace with all of them now. Yeah, you know, it's not about performing or being on or doing anything. You're just seeing them as who they are. And I think that's kind of special. Um, but I think from the get-go, Joe Morgan has been absolutely outstanding uh, as vice chairman um, on, on our board of directors of the hall. And last July in Cooperstown during the induction weekend itself, um, Johnny Bench really, you know, I, I can't emphasize just how welcoming and inviting and personable with, you know, not just myself, but just anybody who walked into that, you know, the Otisago Hotel. Sure. But, but has lobbed, a, you know, has lobbed a couple calls at, at good times um, for me, you know, personally in this role. And um, I'm very, very appreciative of that. So uh, I think they, I really think they all have. The tough thing about this role for my previous role is when you have a new player, you come into camp in spring training, you have six weeks to kind of get to know people. So you're doing a lot of this now, you know, four days in Cooperstown or electronically or via phone. So you have to work at it a little bit sure. more diligent. And I am or was traveling. Uh, to see some folks as well, and, and that'll be a continual um, effort as well once we get up and rolling again. Yeah, and obviously yeah, in Cooperstown, it's not like you got a bunch of major leaguers in the neighborhood like you do here in Southern California. So Cooperstown's no, Anaheim, a journey. Anaheim Hills was nice to have access to a group of players at any given time, you know, with yeah. the Angels, but it's, no, it's not that case here. Yeah, within a 50-mile radius of where you used to live, you probably had access to half the former big leaguers because everybody comes here to play golf and be in the warm weather when their career is over. You mentioned Joe Morgan and Johnny Bench. I, I was looking at your website the other day for the Hall of Fame, just at your board of directors. And I grew up really in the 70s. I was born in 64. I really, my first memories of baseball were probably when I was six or seven years old. So basically 70, 71 until today, I've been just a massive baseball fan. So obviously, you know, this is like Christmas morning for me to get a chance to talk to you about baseball. But guys like Joe Morgan, Roberto Alomar, Phil Negro, Cal Ripken Jr., Brooks Robinson, Ozzie Smith, just to name a few that are just on your board. And these are the guys whose baseball cards I probably still have in a shoebox up in my attic. I mean, what's it like to just rub shoulders with these guys that are everybody's heroes? Well, and I'll tell you, last July, when I sat on that stage, you know, during the induction, it just wasn't lost on me, almost the description you just gave, that, that the men behind me or to, to the side of me were, many of them played a, a big role in why I fell in love with the game of baseball. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because you started at seven or eight, you looked up to them, 
guys that were in their prime, you know, and then you got to eventually work with some of them. But I think as far as heroes, you know, at our age, we look at them as a reminder of our youth as well. We grew up with them as, as heroes. Now we get to see them as social people with, with great social impact and can have a difference. So I, I, I think for me personally, I look at, you know, what Ozzie Smith has done with his education program, you know, and, and some of the causes, you know, Cal Ripken, obviously, and what he's done with youth baseball. So I look at it beyond just the greatness of the player in uniform, because there's a second part of their lives or more yeah. probably fulfilling part of their lives. Right. They probably retired at 35 to 40 at the oldest. And yeah. yeah. So I, you know, you grew up with this bigger than life view because you put people up as heroes, but now they're heroic to me in a different way. And, and to get to work with them in some capacity is very important um, individually, but it's also, I look at it and it's one of the reasons, one of the only reasons that I would have left the best job in, in the world being with the angels yeah. is that you get to, you get to be part of a team that protects the legacy of the game continues the legacy of these individuals and their contributions to the, you know, greatest sport on the planet, as far as I'm concerned, and then protect the overall history of, of our game. And I think to the man, once, once any of them, you know, we just went through the orientation with Ted Simmons and Larry Walker a few weeks ago now. And when they go through the hall, it is amazing to me on the tour that we provide through the orientation, how humbling it is for them. But, and, uh, and then to think those who've walked before and had that orientation had similar humbling experiences. And that is, that's the beauty of, of what the Hall of Fame is. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had that just walking through the halls. I went through as a teenager. And then again, like I said, two years ago, and just that, that humbling experience as well, to look at the plaques like the ones on the wall behind me and yeah. to uh, just look at and, and read the little excerpt about when they played, where they played, and just a brief bio. And then to just have my, just the wave of memories that came over me just walking through the hall. And to, to have that opportunity must, you strike me as the type of person, obviously, from what I've known about you for the last couple of decades, that like you said, it, it doesn't get lost on you. You never, you probably never have a day where you take it for granted. You shouldn't. I mean, I, right. I always said that if you walked and stepped on a major league field, yeah. and didn't get a certain feeling or you took it for granted. And people have heard me say this a thousand times. That's kind of the sign that it's time to step aside and let somebody else do it. Yeah. I never lost that feeling. And every morning or at some point in the day that I walk through that plaque gallery and I see that there's a, there's just an instant feeling of respect and almost solemnity. Like I can't walk here and have this, loud conversation with somebody. I mean, it's like a library. Is the great, yeah, it, it's not a mausoleum or anything, but it's, sure. it is the home of greatness. And I think there's just a respect that's called for in, in being in there. Well, you can't talk about American history without talking about baseball history. And you really put the two together oftentimes. How are you adjusting to the weather back there? I know you've had a winter now in Cooperstown being a Southern California boy. That's, that's, I've never lived in the winter. There's a reason that I still live where it's 70 degrees year round. How about for well, you back there? I, I've been, I've been pretty fortunate. I had a couple of trips that I had to take, uh, were a couple of the, the real bad storms. Like, you know, I had a couple back there. Everybody said it's been a mild winter. 
Uh, I had three different layers of parkas. I had the gloves. So, I mean, I, I did my... It's all relative. Uh, yeah. Um, but it, it hasn't been bad. And people told me, you know, a month ago, don't think you survived your quote-unquote first winter because you have not had a winter yet. And, uh, right. Yeah, that's that unfortunate. Was, Looks like a lot uh, more uh, Southern California and Florida trips next winter, huh? Well, exactly. And that's, you know, that, that's encouraging. But, I, but I'll tell you, it, it's, it, what amazes me back there is to watch how the village operates. Just everybody knows what they're supposed to do, you know, with the, uh, the shoveling, not the shoveling of the snow, the clearing of the snow in the village. And it's just, it's a, it's a rhythm to doing it. And people just know uh, the communication, whether school is going to be delayed or closed, businesses. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting to watch. Um, it's also interesting to back the truck out of the garage and have it say 27, 28 degrees in your garage. You back out of the driveway, and by the time you've backed out and taken a right and you're half mile down, you've watched it drop nine or 10 degrees. And, you know, I've, I've tried to take a video of it a couple of times, but um, a, a garage is a tremendous asset. Yeah, no doubt about it. Are you in Cooperstown, where you're living? Uh, yes, I'm actually um, right across the street from the Clark Sports Center, where the okay. induction is held. Awesome. So. Fantastic. I, I love that town. I, I can't wait to get back there. Let me get topical to what's going on right now, just for a couple of minutes, and then we'll dive into, sure. you know, how you got started, and there's just so many, so many places I'd love to go today, and, you know, we could spend three hours, but we'll try to do it in about 40 or 45 minutes. This coronavirus impact and this and this pandemic we're in right now, you mentioned at the outset of this call about um, the impact of the hall being closed. What are your thoughts on what the long-term, if any, ramifications might be? Not just on the hall. I mean, it'll, you'll get back to business as usual at some point. But as a baseball guy, you've been in the game 40 years now plus. Um, you've seen work stoppages before for different reasons. What's your feel on what the, first of all, are you in the know at all? No, none of us really are. None of us know when this is going to be lifted. But what are you hearing from Major League Baseball, from the government as to expectations about when we might be back to watching baseball games and when you might be back in Cooperstown welcoming thousands of guests every day? Well, you and I are in the same position uh, in that regard. I think for us running the hall, uh, we've kind of agreed that I think most Americans have. We're listening to the direction of the CDC and monitoring that. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of information out there, but I think we're all probably better served to, to just kind of streamline some things. Sure. Uh, regarding return and all, again, we're no different than any other business or industry, but as it pertains to the game of baseball and where the, where the future goes, certainly early to, to speculate, but you can also sense by the conversation of, what they're doing for stadium employees and what's yeah. being done now with the draft and service time. I mean, it's business as usual in a different format. And there, there are, there isn't anybody who wears a uniform or runs the game that is putting our business scenario above our social reality. Right. And I right. think that is, that's what's most important. Um, everybody knows that, you know, we're going to have to move, we're going to move forward at some point. Um, Everybody, I think, is acutely aware of what's what's going on, but this might be the the chance to not zero base, but look at some creative things to get whenever we do start again through 2020, whenever that might be. 
look into the future, bring the future of the game a little bit into the present. Um, and I think that that between the Players Association and, and commission, the Commissioner Manfred and and some very smart people in New York, they're going to arrive at some things that might uh, ho hopefully hopefully we settle into for the future because yeah, I think yeah. it's unknown. It, it's there's nothing exciting about right now, sure. but there. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, and it's interesting to be creative and try to try to serve everybody's interest to the best of everybody's ability. So there's no perfect scenario out of this yet. I mean, yeah, whatsoever. Well, I know baseball probably more than most sports is so statistically driven, and we just we calculate based on a 162 game season. And I just read this morning that at most I think they're looking at potentially 140 now. Yeah. And uh, you know there've been asterisk years before. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I'm I'm just as, as a fan, you know, of baseball in general. I mean, baseball is the one sport that. It doesn't matter what level, boys or girls, softball, baseball, little league, high school, major league, minor league, I'll watch. I'm glued, and I know you're the same way. I'm glued to it. I miss walking to the park a half a mile from my house and hearing the crack of the bat right now and taking my grandsons over there so they can look up at these, you know, 11-year-old kids that they idolize because my grandsons are five and eight that live here. Yeah. And um, just looking forward to that, and I miss that. It's, I'm really looking forward to how do you think, what do you think will happen first? Do you think we'll get back into youth sports and high school and then kind of ramp up? Or do you think it'll be ball players playing in empty stadiums for a while? Again, I know you don't know, but I mean, you've had sure. conversations, obviously. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's going to be interesting because you're going to, right now, you're going to look at some of the countries, like the Asian countries are playing, you know, starting up. So I think we're going to, it's not going to be what we want to do. It's going to be what we are, what's recommended and responsible. So, you know, it's easy for us to look and say, okay, you can put a team in front of empty stadiums, you know, in an, in an empty stadium to play a game, but that team is still going to be a group. That team is still going to sure. have to go through spring training at some point. So you're going to have a group of people. So really it's the first steps there before we even talk about crowds and games. So uh, I think it will be safety first. Um, no doubt it'll be safety first, whatever those measures are. Um, and, and I think, you know, the scenarios that, that must be in, on the table right now um, are probably things that most of the, most of the folks in that room could never have conceived. Sure. sure. But I, I believe strongly in the collective brain trust of this industry and they will come to a conclusion that, that will, you know, that will serve everyone. And they also, everybody also understands the importance of this sport and the other sports. Sure. And the, the psyche of our society. Yeah. I mean, I don't care whether it's, you know, high school state championship, um, little league baseball, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. and, you know, professional sports. We need that. Yeah. You know, we need, we need the bands performing in concerts and we need Broadway to start up again. We, we need that entertainment aspect of our lives. Yeah. And I talk constantly about one of my favorite things about sports, regardless of the sport, is the escape from, not the escape from reality, but that opportunity to, for three hours or so, you know, you're, you, everybody in the stadium is typically rooting for one team. Usually there's a few visiting fans at every stadium, obviously, as well. Uh, if we ever needed that escape, it's now. If you'd have told me uh, three weeks ago that 
we're going to be quarantined to our homes and we can't leave our houses. I'd say, well, at least I got baseball starting on the 26th and I got the NBA playoffs coming and the NFL draft coming and the NHL. I mean, all these things, but now it's like, I watch marble races on YouTube and I'm enthralled by it. You know, it's hilarious to quote my son. It's hilarious and mesmerizing at the same time. It's like marble races, Tim. Well, there there are some things that are covered that, Two months ago, I would have laughed at. But exactly. to your point, you know, yeah. now it becomes it, it becomes competition. We love to watch yeah. competition. Yeah. So it, it's it, it's going to be interesting how it starts. I think there's going to be certainly new realities. Um, it, it's also going to be how our psyche handles it. You know, there's going to be certain portion of people that probably are going to have a more wait and see than the others. You know, that first opening day, the person I probably feel for you know, when all this is, when we've moved forward, is the count that the schedule makers mm-hmm. on the networks and all yeah. the sports, because everybody's going to try to catch up right. to some degree, if it's still salvageable. And uh, how you're going to manage that on certain weekends, and you know, we're only going to have a finite amount of time to, to get those things together. There's going to be some big decisions that are going to be made by networks and others. Venues. What do you think of seven inning doubleheaders? I've been reading a little bit about that. I mean, we're already playing with the integrity of the game because we're forced to with the shortened season and so forth. Do you, do you see that that can, I mean, desperate I, times I think, call for desperate measures, as they say, right? I think when you're going through something that's, that's not occurred in our lifetime, everybody has to be open-minded to everything that's on the table. And, and I think it's, I feel that it's not so much, you can't look back at tradition and worry about asterisks and numbers. I mean, we still don't talk about 81, which just, we kind of say 81 world champions. We don't always refer to it as the split season and the strike shortened all the time. Um, at some point, statistically, these, these things shall pass as well. But I just, I, I believe we have to be, all of us have to be open-minded. Yeah. Thanks for talking about my Dodgers there for a minute, by the way. I appreciate that. <laughs> Tim's always known. I love him. I love the Angels, but I just, I've bled Dodger blue my whole life, which takes me to a question that I just jotted down that I wanted to ask you. Um, I've worked in baseball a little bit, you know, a handful of years. You've been in it for your life. For me, when I worked in the game, it was harder for me to be a fan because I tended to look at the business of baseball more. And so I'm really, for me, and this is just me talking, getting out of the game, having it be my day-to-day paycheck and going back to being a fan was somewhat refreshing for me. I don't get that that's an issue for you because as you've talked about here and in many conversations over the years that we've had, you've been a fan, you've been a fan first, but I mean, you know, that's your profession as well. And I get that. Talk about how your fandom, if that's the right word, has changed. I know that it was, you know, Halo Red through and through for 39 years. I know you have to be a little bit more neutral now because you represent 30 teams plus the history of the game. Um, How has Tim Mead, the sports fan, changed in your time at the Hall of Fame? Really not a bit, Ed, from this standpoint. Actually, I found out a little bit more about myself. I mean, when you think you know pretty much everything you need to know about yourself every day, but when the Nationals won the World Series, and uh, I was – John and I had to, to cover that and collect artifacts and all um, walking in the clubhouse. Cause I grew up in Virginia until we moved out here in 69. Yeah, yeah. So the senators were my first team. Oh, great. 
So to walk in the clubhouse, obviously, to see Howie and Fernando Rodney and a bunch of guys. As you do, sure. Yeah, but it was Washington one. And I, and I really had not given that too much thought prior, but it kind of took me back to, you know, pre-teen years and in the, the period of time that I fell in love with the game, going to D.C. Stadium, RFK Stadium, Frank Howard, Paul Casanova, the guys I looked up to. So that never left me. It may have been put on the shelf a little bit, sure. but it never left me. Yeah. I can't spend – the Angels will always be my club. I mean, our VP of Communications, John Chestakowski, came from the Red Sox. That will always be his club. Um, we have bigger responsibilities, but that's my team. And everything that, that ever happens associated with the Angels until I take my last breath will mean something to me. Sure. So that's just – that's the way it's going to be. Well, I'm going to go out of order from my notes a little bit since you're talking to Angels a little bit. Can I play a little word association game with you? Sure. All right. I'm going to mention a name or, or an event and just from from top of your head what comes up. I'll start with a couple of Hall of Famers that, that made their – their mark, perhaps in other locations, but certainly they are remembered as angels as well. First guy that came to mind for me was Reggie Jackson. Big game, big game, big performance. Put it on my shoulders. I want it, and I'll come through. And uh, and knew it. Welcome the challenge each and every day, and never cheated the game. Up ten to one, down ten to one. He gave you max effort each and every day. Excellent. Mr. October, there's a reason for that, right? Yes, sir. You, you win in October by the work you put in in February. And that's Absolutely. a guy who obviously worked, you could tell. Yep. He's not on my list, and he didn't play for the Angels, but uh, same era, Ricky Henderson. Um, we had, we actually got Ricky at the end of his career with us. Okay. And um, I was 97, maybe 96, 97. And uh, – you just looked at him and, and you just saw everything from his prime, all those A's years, obviously. And, and uh, getting to know him a little bit, we would play some cards on the, on the plane on, on road trips. And I, I had the distinct privilege of hearing Ricky talk in third person. And I, I loved it, but he had a, he had an energy in the clubhouse during stretching and on the field, even toward the end of his career, and I, I kind of look back even then that it was a privilege to have been around him. So you had him in 97 or so. We had him in the Golden Baseball League here in Southern California for one year in 2005. I was the GM of the Fullerton team, and he was playing for San Diego. But when he would come to Fullerton, our home games were at Cal State Fullerton. Um, we would have, we had a – oh, go ahead. No, you know, I, I think, Ed – you know, we all seen that clip. In fact, we show it in a, in a generations of game in a film we have in, at the hall of Ricky standing at the third. Yep. But what I really think when I reflect back, and again, I look at the totality of a career and who a person is, people are wondering about his speech, you know, when he was finally inducted. Mm -hmm. The humility he showed at the end um, and that he had hired somebody to work with him on – speech presentation and it meant everything to him to do it right yeah so so even then he was he was Ricky Henderson but a different Ricky Henderson and I have utmost respect for the stories I heard about how all that happened kind of goes back to your comment earlier and I want to come back to my game here for a second but um the respect for the game that these guys on the plaques behind me and the guys that you talk about 
um, have, and that seems to be a common denominator that I, I pick up from what I know, which is a, a sliver of what you know about these guys. Well, I think I think so. They realize, look, you get a little isolated in tunnel vision when you're the the greatest player in the clubhouse or one of the, the great players, and you're going through your career. But then you come someplace where it's nothing but greatness. Mm-hmm. You realize that you just slot in, that you're not going to be ranked number one above everybody else. Yeah. You're, not, you're now coming to a fraternity, as I've said, that only gets better. But it wasn't built around you. You now get to, to say that you're part of arguably the most special fraternity, you know, one of the most special fraternities in this country. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's and like I, that I, triangle, you know, the triangle of, you know, a million kids play little league and then a percentage play high school and then a million kids play high school and a percentage make it to college and on up and a million, you know, thousands yeah. play big leagues and a tiny, tiny percentage make it to the hall. So they're used to just climbing up that pyramid. Well, 19,960 players have played major league baseball, you know, at least a game. Wow. Less than one percent are in Cooperstown. That's just awesome, and you're so, there. you get to work there every day. That's pretty yes, awesome. Yeah. So back on Ricky really fast, and then I'll throw a couple more names at you before we move forward. Um, Ricky played one year in the Golden Baseball League again, where I was the GM in Fullerton. He played for the San Diego team, and I had probably two or three times where I had a chance to have just lengthy one-on-one conversations with him by the batting cage, or in the dugout, or the clubhouse, or in the parking lot, walking from his car down to the field and so forth. And I was very impressed, you know, the, how eloquent he was actually, which a lot of people wouldn't have expected. Um, his love for the game, his passion for the game. You know, he, I think deep down he knew he wasn't going to work his way back into the big leagues by 2005, but he was still like Jose Canseco who played in the league as well. And a few others still had that competitive and drive, competitive drive enough that they could play and compete. And, and be one of the you know top guys, but I had a chance to to hear Ricky speak in the third person. And my last encounter with him, I went third person on him, and he cracked up. I won't tell the story, but <laughs> I, I did the well. Ed wants to tell Ricky that Ed thinks Ricky's a great guy, and Ed enjoyed. But <laughs> he said, "Do I sound like that?" I go, "No, man, you pull it off. I can't pull it off <laughs> at all." Right. You, you know what? Funny. You brought something up about him playing in the league, and you know some people would maybe look and say, well, guys can't let it go or they're hanging on. I look at it quite differently. I look at that as love of the game. I watched Tony mm-hmm. Phillips, the late Tony Phillips, and a, yeah. a good friend of a lot of ours, try to come back in his 50s, you know, and just try to get an independent league and came to yeah. camp. And we actually worked him out just on a backfield for him to, to just get an honest evaluation. But it's love of the game. Yeah. And certainly you weren't paying Ricky or San Diego wasn't paying Ricky Henderson a small fortune. He loved the game. Yeah. Um, you know, you, we're going to see some of our, <laughs> my period of time, uh, and it's different than being a professional athlete, but, you know, classic rock and roll or maybe the voice isn't quite the same, but they love to perform. They love yeah. the art that they were given a God-given skill set to do. And, and you know what? Until some, until nobody wants to buy a ticket or somebody doesn't give you a uniform, you're going to continue trying. Mick Jagger and Paul McCartney still fill arenas and stadiums. Yeah, there They've you been go. Doing it for 50 plus years. A couple more names: Nolan Ryan. Um, being on, I saw his fourth no hitter. Um, I actually every time. No one's one of those people to me that every time you're kind of around him, there's just there's just a different presence without him trying to. He's been very in, 
you know, I had many conversations with him, not a lot of lengthy ones per se, during the Angels. I've probably talked to him more in this role now. Um, he called, called in early November just to check in and see how I was settling in, and we ended up having a 40-minute conversation, which was, which was wonderful. Um, what he did in forgetting just on the field, I mean, that's self-explanatory. Right. Um, but what he did with the Rangers, his – his presence and his love of the game, what he's done in the community. Uh, I, I think it's a wealth of knowledge that uh, still has a lot more to give. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I, I think there's, there's a certain humility. Um, you know, I still, uh, I wrestle with going through and, and trying to put that A on the plaque in there. In the, <laughs> the gallery. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. But, but what it, I just think of, I think a fierce competitor and in, in, in the film generations of the game, he talks about letting the pitch out of his hand. And he said, you know, there were times when you just released it, you knew what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And and that confidence, but it was that subtle confidence, no arrogance. He was just, he knew he'd been given a, a special gift and he maximized it. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember when, uh, when uh, the, the famous, clip of Robin Ventura and all I got to do is say Robin Ventura you know right where I'm going with this when he charged Ryan on the mound I remember thinking to myself even in that moment this is kind of like spray painting Mount Rushmore you don't charge Nolan Ryan and you're not going to win if you charge no. Nolan Ryan either by any stretch let me no. give you a compare and contrast to your two former bosses with the Angels Gene Autry and Arnie Moreno uh, Mr. Autry I mean, I still say Mr. Autry. I mean, Artie wanted us to call him Artie, so that's not why I don't say <laughs> yeah. Mr. Marino. Right. Um, but Mr. Autry was still part of that individual owner, uh, you know, the O'Malley's. And it was it was kind of before corporations and big bigger companies or or groups, bought clubs. Um, his, his, his biggest happiness was being around baseball. Yeah. I mean, very seldom did he talk about I in the movies and I on, on the, the Hollywood uh, Walk of Fame. And just when he was it just didn't matter. And if you go to his suite, even today, it, most of those photos uh, at the stadium are with ball players. Um, Artie took us where I think the Angels had deserved to go for a long, long time, and that was branding. Yeah. Obviously, you know, he purchased us after 02. But really sustaining the success that we had for the better part, almost a decade, um, there was success off the field as well as there was on. So that, you know, you highlighted red and promoted red, promoted Angels baseball and the A. So that you could put a billboard up on the five and see the A and knew what it was all about. Yeah. And I think Artie, Artie taught us a tremendous amount of business lessons. Um, you know, he's got a great team in place there with uh, Dennis Cool and, and John Carpino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, community-minded. Artie, Artie is never going to be about rebuilding. Uh, Artie is about winning. And, uh, you know, I said that before I left. I, I really I really hope his tenure sees that. I, I hope and I look forward to the, to the day of seeing he and Mike Trout host a trophy together. Yeah. There's a great uh, advertising campaign going on right now from the Angels on the billboards around Southern California. It says, stay strong with the A's stay, stay. I yep. love that. It brought chills to me the other day when I saw yep. that. So well, that's I, your community responsibility. Absolutely. And, and that has always been at the forefront of the Angels' mindset. Yeah. 
you mentioned a guy just now who was going to be my last word association with you. And then there's one other number I'm going to throw at you. Mike Trapp, best in the game today. You know, I've, I've said this so many times in so many different scenarios, but he is a better person than he is a player. That's what I perceive. I've never met the man and I'm likely never will. Uh, maybe I will. Maybe I'll be fortunate enough to come visit you at the Hall of Fame on the day that he's being inducted because you know that's going to be out there. Well, I told but, him uh, I'd, be, I'd be 78. So I said, Mike, somebody else will be handing you that <laughs> Well, but uh, you'll be there. Uh, I certainly hope so. Yeah. Um, but he is, he is the best of the best without trying to be anything other than he is. And, yeah. and his humbleness, his humility, his love of life, his impact on other people, teammates, media people who he understands their role and their jobs uh, is really second to none. And uh, I, I know we all talk about the spotlight and the big stage in October. Um, I think baseball and fans of baseball know very well who Mike is, but I think for all he's given to the game, uh, obviously I want to see the Angels, but I, I want to see Mike Trout get his October. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, my, my dream is back-to-back -back World Series between the Dodgers and Angels, so Trout and Kershaw can each get theirs. That's, yeah. that's what I would love to see as a Southern California sports fan. All right, I'm going to say a year. You know what year I'm going to say? 2002. Uh, nothing like it never will be uh, because it's the first. It was 42 years of anticipation. Uh, it put, you, put the organization in the history books where you never had to look back. Never had to hear about the curse. You never had to hear about, well, you're only one of four or one of three that have never been. But it was magical. And when you look back and look that that team had no MVPs, no future Hall of Famers, and I believe no World Series experience going in, it was not the best talented team. It was the best team. Yeah. They relied on each other. They were baseball rats. They played the game right. They had a manager who worked tirelessly along with the coaching staff to get them to the point of uh, not worrying about failure, you know, going from first to third, the hit and runs, the stolen bases, taking the extra base, just doing things like that. Runner on second, nobody out, you hit the ground ball to second base, you move them to third, you, you allow somebody else to get the sacrifice fly and score. It was a selfless group of players you know, when the club started six and 14 and maybe there was some outside panic or pressure or whatever, it never entered into the clubhouse. And that club won 99 games. Um, and I will, I will look at it. I remember in, uh, you know, in New York in the division series, and we obviously lose that, that first game close and walking in the clubhouse afterwards and Spees looked over at me and he goes, that was fun. <laughs> and I knew that they weren't, you know, we, we lost uh, game five of the World Series, 16-4 mm -hmm. in uh, San Francisco, and there was no, to go down 3-2, there was no panic, uncomfortableness on that plane ride back. It was just a very confident team. Yeah. Um, Even down, what, 5 nothing? I think, was it game six? 5 nothing in the seventh inning. Yeah, that yeah. was pretty special. Oh, that was a turning point, I think, for the franchise, even though, like you said, it's the only one they've won. But still, I think that that is what made everybody an Angel fan, I think, at that point, was to come from your back that far back to turn yeah. it around. Well, and I, I think if, if, if you were 
fortunate for the staff to and the inside to see the response. I mean, everybody in the community shared it and you got to share it in a different way than we did, but to see the emails and the letters and all the things we heard from people about how much that meant. Uh, I know we sent out four or five jerseys to people that were gonna put them in caskets for funerals. Right. If we could have, you know, Sosh or somebody sign them because how much this meant to my grandfather that he lived long enough to see this or my dad or whatever. I mean, it was it was personal, and I think that sometimes we we have to remember it's not just the championship to people. Right. It's not just the parade that means things when a city wins a or a town or a location wins a championship. It's what it does to people inside that have followed forever. We helped create a generation of future Angel fans at that point, and then followed it up with you know with some success. Sure. That's awesome. I wanted to, I'm looking at our time, but I, like I said, we could go three hours here, right? Can you, can you, you know that I work with a lot of young students who are just getting started in their career, and I've heard you tell the story to my students each year, but I think it, uh, it warrants being told again. Maybe we'll cut the interview here and come back and just play this excerpt for my class, or maybe it'll be part of the podcast, or who knows what, but could you talk a little bit, about, Tim, about how you got into the game? I mean, I know your story, but I and I never tire of hearing it. How your persistence paid off, and just what you well, did. Well, you know, it. it uh, yeah, I, I wrote letters to every major league team, every football team when I was in tenth grade. But how do you become a statistician? That was that was all I was aware of because obviously, you know, in those days, structure of front offices were were very, very small and compared. There's no comparison. to. You thought there was a GM and you didn't really know what else there was yeah, there on the outside looking in. There was no internet to, to research or Google something. So I wrote the letters and I would say probably 65, 70% of the baseball teams responded back. I still have a lot of the football letters. I have all the baseball letters. Um, the PR director of the Dallas Cowboys, uh, to this day, I still don't know how, called me. He had my <laughs> phone number and gave me a call and I happened to be home on an afternoon, but I, uh, you know, I had some good advice from people, basically the same advice, go to school, get your education, um, then apply. Uh, so I go to Cal Poly, um, you know, I just wanted to, I wanted to either be a writer or get a job in sports, in, in, in baseball doing that. And, uh, I wrote three letters to the angels and, uh, was rejected three times for an internship. They only had one intern at the time because internship programs weren't what they are today as well. And uh, fortunately, after the third one and the third letter, as I've told you before, just said, thank you again for your recent letter. <laughs> yeah. Previously at least it wasn't the thanks but no thanks stamped letter. That exactly. They knew that you kept applying. And it was a response. Right. You know, it was a response. You're on someone's uh, radar now. Exactly. And then a couple of weeks later, the intern left the organization and, and I got a call and came in and things took off from there. But I always tell people, and, and I will mean this as simplistic as it is, if I didn't write the second letter or if I didn't write the third letter, I'm not having this conversation with you. Exactly. And, and that's it. There was nothing special or unique. It was persistence. Um, they saw something and maybe simply that second or third letter tipped them off that maybe this, maybe, you know, this kid's either going to be a pain or maybe <laughs> what he yeah. expresses. Let's just hire him and maybe he'll go away after yeah, a while, just, right? Yeah. yeah, just save us some time. So 
that's really how it started. And, and then uh, did the internship after that. Uh, wanted to come back a second time as I got married and didn't have a job. And my boss at the time was kind of like the parent kicking out the door just saying it's time to go grow and spread your wings. And, um, and he was doing my best interest. And there was nothing on the horizon. And uh, eventually a stadium operations director who's or the stadium operations department had a, an opening. Uh, they hired me for two days. The secretary and PR stepped aside. I replaced her, worked my way up. So it, it's, uh, you know, I look back at, and sometimes I say this, when I look at the Angels in that period of time, around that period of time, but Bill Bavese, who, uh, this, the place across the street from the Crystal Cathedral, used Hoff's Hut, I believe, uh, was a bartender there and worked in the ground crew in San Diego. Billy went on to become a great farm director, sure. responsible for most of the players in 02 in our system. Then obviously went on to the Dodgers in Seattle. You had Tony Regans, who started as an intern, uh, led us two division championships, and now is in the hierarchy of Major League Baseball. Kevin Ulick, who started as a uh, bat boy in the clubhouse did was kind of our de facto president went on and helped the expos relocate to washington won a world series in kansas city jeff parker who was a uh, our farm director started as a clubhouse kid uh, got out of baseball owns five five guys chains or, or restaurants and then me um, we all worked under a system of working your way up and we're examples of um, hard work. We have great mentors, Mr. Autry, a lot of people in the Angels organization. We listened to people who had been there before, yeah. who had experience. We didn't come in with all the answers because we were young. We absorbed what they had to tell us and tried to apply it and kind of got a kick in the seat of the pants when we were wrong. But I look at that group of people and realize we're the same person in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that's awesome. So let me ask you a couple more questions here and I'll, I'll let you get back to family here. What guides you, Tim? When you think of what is it that's your compass or what is it that, you know, great question. what's the legacy that you're trying to leave? Or yeah, I'll, I'll go back to what guides you. No legacy. I've, I've never, you know, I, I believe you just live your life and you do what you're supposed to. Um, legacy is a debate for other people. Um, you know, I agree with that. My it's a, setting it's up to me, but what people say about me, that's that's them. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it really is. It's kind of like you'll hear somebody in a in a powerful office talking about, well, what do they want their legacy to be? I just at the end of, at the end of the day, <laughs> the end of the day, we're all going to go out one of two ways. We're all going to go out, and, and it will be a discussion point. And how many cars you have in your garage, money in your bank, items in store, it's just not going to matter. Yeah. It is how you treated other people. It's what you do. You hope you make a contribution. Your family should be automatic, but you also should strive to do things for other people. And I think right now, when you look around with what we're going through, you see people doing some extraordinary things, even in isolation yeah. for other people. When I see those, you know, the, the opera singer singing in Italy and people leading parades for kids with birthdays and doing certain things, I, I mean, people going and, and leaving a thousand dollar tip for a small business to be able to help pay their employees for that week. Yeah. 
that's pretty special. Yeah, we all have those capabilities. So I think that's a little bit of what I thrive on. Yeah. Where do you spend your time? I know family's important. I know you're a recent grandpa. Which, you know, I can speak to my experience of one of the greatest joys in my life as well. And I see you smile and light up yeah. as you as you talk kind of just think about that. Outside of family and your career, where do you where do you put your time? Where where's your energies going? I know Ronald McDonald House was big and Amigos de los Niños and other things when you're out here, but what about now? Um, I, I miss that a little bit back in Cooperstown, having the access to some wonderful charities. Um, Sunburst Youth Academy was big, and obviously mm -hmm. Amigos de los Niños and um, Ronald McDonald House and things you mentioned. But it's interesting about uh, uh, two weeks after the induction ceremony, uh, there's a place called Pathfinder Village, and it's it's a literally a village. It's almost 275, 300 acres for Down syndrome folks, not a certain age. You can be there from seven, eight to you pass. Wow. And uh, they have, we fundraise for the, them and it's kind of a collaborative effort. So every year we take a Hall of Famer and go there and visit. And uh, I mean, it was quiet day, which most days. <laughs> Cooper's out outside of that weekend, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So went with Lee Smith and his wife and uh, went on a tour. And to see those folks give you, show you, they, they raise their own produce, they have their own bakery. It's a village, not with walls, not with barriers, self-sufficient, obviously counselors and, and uh, res, uh, what do you call it, the folks, the residential aides mm -hmm. that are there. Sure. Then we went into the gym and there's a whole group of them. We played kickball with them. And I was standing there thinking, that's what I miss. You know, to watch Lee Smith rolling a ball and pitching and giving me grief because we're not positioned <laughs> over and, you know, and just the interaction. I'm thinking, this is fun. This is, that's the best part of, even really, Ed, some of the best part with the Angels is, is the community things and right. using the resources of a, of a company that cares or a business that cares and touching other people. Um, we all have... We may not all have those resources. We all have those capabilities. Yeah, I talked the other day on a podcast with Steve Carroll, the radio play-by-play -play guy for the Ducks. And uh, he was saying very similar things. Yeah, the game is fun and calling the games and being at the arena, but being out in the community, that's, that's the reward for the work that you do at the ballpark or at the arena, the opportunity to do that and impact the community away from the game. And he does some very special things. He does. Uh, Steve does a lot of things just kind of – you know, just without a lot of attention, which is the way he likes it, but a great deal of respect for all his efforts. Yeah, he's a great guy. Well, I could go on. There's so many more names, so many more stories. Um, we'll do this again next time. I, when I'm in Cooperstown, I mean, my, I, I do have a plan of getting back there and bringing the microphone and the cameras and do this on your on your turf back there. I won't do it on Hall of Fame weekend because I won't see you then, but there'll be other times for sure. And by the way, just on a personal note, I'm going to tell my audience that um, my best friend growing up is a, a guy by the name of Jeff Peterson. Jeff and I played high school baseball together. He went on to play a little bit of San Diego State, and uh, we texted each other this morning. That's how close we are. And I told him I was going to be talking with you. Um, Jeff took his boy and his boy's team back to Cooperstown last summer. This was Tim's first week on the job. 
and I just sent a text, not expecting really even to get a response from you, not because of you, but first week on the job, who responds? And this, this type of a job. And not only did Tim respond, but he said, let me know when Jeff and his boys are gonna be here. I'll try to say hi. And you did more than that. Uh, I have a photo that's uh, in my office back at campus of Fullerton. That's you and Jeff and his team. And they went on to win the championship that week at that tournament. And they consider that you were their lucky, their, their, their good luck charm. So thank you for making the time to visit with one of my most dear friends and to make an impact. And, and the fact that that's, that's who you are. And I think that's yeah. uh, why when I talk to people around sports and I'm gonna flatter you and you've heard it before, um, but it's from my heart. Uh, and I'm gonna ask you in a minute a similar question from my heart is that you are that person that everybody considers as one of the, the greatest human beings in sports, let alone anywhere. So thank you for the type of human being you are, for the inspiration and really just for the, uh, the role model you are for so many of us that want to just strive to do our job better and serve people better because we see it in you and it, it inspires us. I just want to say thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, re I really do. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. It's, 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 it's true. And so I just spoke to you from my heart. So now I'm going to wrap up this interview by asking you simply, Tim, and we'll close with this. Just tell me right now what's in your heart. Best interests of my family. And at this time, best interest of people that I'm close with and millions of people we're not because we're battling something that uh, we're battling something that that's unknown. Um, the end is unknown. And I think we're more reliant on each other uh, than ever before. And uh, it's going to be incumbent upon a lot of people doing a lot of extraordinary things to get to the end of this. And I, I think we're seeing that certainly on the front lines, but there's a lot of people we need to pray for right now. Absolutely. Tim, thank you. God bless you for what you do and especially for who you are. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Ed. Thank you.